Welcome to the City Beautiful Church podcast. Thank you for taking the time to join our family as we strive to live together in heavenly reality. For more great content, visit us online at citybeautiful.ch. Well, good morning, everyone, and welcome to City Beautiful Church. My name is Ryan, and we are in a series that I am feeling to the depths of my bones today. What to do when everything is terrible. As many of you know, we record this on Thursdays, and as of right now, there, it is raining down anxiety in our country as we're waiting for the results of the election, as we're refreshing Google every five minutes to see how many uh, ballots are being counted in counties that we've never even heard of before, and some of us in Florida are having, uh, being triggered as memories of hanging chads and that whole debacle 20 years ago, and um, it's, it's hard and it's heavy, and I'm feeling it too. Um, And I think because of that, there's no better day uh, than to read the book of Ecclesiastes. So this week and next, I'm going to be speaking on Ecclesiastes, um, which is one of the wisdom books in the Bible. I think many of us this year have probably asked ourselves a very deep existential question saying, "What, what what is even the point of all of this? That feeling of kind of utter despair and uh, just being overwhelmed with not understanding why things are the way they are. And these are the kinds of questions that it's not just an intellectual understanding of something. It's not just theological. Like we feel it in our bones. You know, and I hope this is not a surprise to any of you, those of you that know me and have been part of this community for a while, but you know, I oftentimes find myself in that position when it comes to my calling, when it comes to my career, when it comes to what it's cost me to live the life that I feel like God's calling me to. That a lot of times in prayer, I'm saying, God, you better be real because if you're not, what this has cost me sucks. And it's in those moments, it's not about having an answer. It's about what I feel in the depths of me, in that place of, of real, genuine despair. Or maybe for you, it's you, you thought you had an answer, you knew how the world works, and then something happened on a national platform or locally, and it kind of blew up your world. And you're like, what, what was the point? What was the point of everything that I've worked so hard for, or, or how I've understood how this works? Like, what is really going on? And we find ourselves in that place of, of loss, of confusion. But there's a subversive wisdom on the other side of conventional wisdom or common sense that can only be received after pain, suffering, and loss. And this is what we find in the scripture. There are the wisdom books, Proverbs, Psalms, and the Song of Songs. And Proverbs is what we say, it's conventional wisdom. It's, it's life advice. It's these neat little tidy packages that we can come in and there's just some real beauty there for us. Like, you know, be nice to people and take care of your wife and, you know, fools uh, speak before thinking. It's kind of good, natural, uh, common sense wisdom. And it sits next to this book called Ecclesiastes, which if you've ever read it, is maybe the most offensive book in the whole Bible. Uh, because it seems to undo a lot of the conventional wisdom of what God is like or how the world works or, you know, if we work really hard and we're going to get what we deserve out of life and let's just do the thing. And unfortunately, a lot of times the way we've been taught to do the Bible is that when we say that we take it literally, what we mean is we have to iron out all the wrinkles and make the whole thing agree with itself. 
that there is no conflict in the Bible, that, you know, that there are no errors or whatever it is. And these, these categories of doing Bible end up choking out the very uncomfortable presence of a book like Ecclesiastes. Because I think what is actually true is that the authority of the Bible comes from the fact that this is a conversation between men and women who are wrestling with the divine, trying to figure out how this whole thing works. What do we do when everything is terrible? What is God like? How does he show up for us? What does faithfulness look like for us? And when we allow the Bible its own internal narrative, its own internal conversation, we actually see that the wisdom speaks to us at different points in our own story. And so the book of Ecclesiastes, uh, the author is, is written in, in the book itself as Ecclesiasticus, which is, uh, or Koheleth in Hebrew. And it's a word that kind of means maybe like the teacher or the preacher or the, even like the professor, some people translate it as. This is someone who's standing up and speaking out of their life experience and their observations to the great assembly. Now the tradition holds that it was written by Solomon. You'll see why in a moment when you read the first chapter. Um, then that's not always the consensus today, but I love the idea uh, of this being written by Solomon, a man who was blessed with wisdom by God, was really running the course, and then got dramatically off course uh, with his life, lost everything. And this is, the, this is what he would say to us, kind of the wisdom on the other side of wisdom, the stuff that happens when we experience radical loss. And it almost didn't make it into the Jewish Bible. Even by the first century, there was still a debate. What do we do with this scripture? But at the end of the day, they said, well, if Solomon actually did write this, then it bears us putting it into the Bible. And, and for the past 2,000 years, as we've inherited um, the Jewish Bible and added onto it the New Testament, Christians have continued to wrestle with, what do we do with this book? It's uncomfortable. It's skeptical. It's pessimistic. It doesn't give me easy answers. It's a offensive. But I think, and I hope over the next next two Sundays, that you'll actually realize that this book might actually be one of the most pertinent books of scripture for us today in the things that we're wrestling with on what to do when everything is terrible. So I'm going to pray, and then we're going to read the first chapter of Ecclesiastes. Um, Heavenly Father, I come into your presence right now tired and anxious and maybe a little bit short-tempered. I haven't done the best that I could to take care of myself over these past few days, and I know that that's only made it worse, and I'm sorry, Lord. I want to turn to you more, to be more grounded in your presence so that I can be really attentive to what's happening in the world around me, um, but that it doesn't affect the core of who I am. And so, Lord, today, as we all come into this place, and and as I'm speaking into the future, I don't even know what Sunday morning is like. Uh, But I pray that we would all be able to do that, Lord, that we come into your presence with all of our guilt and our regret of the past, um, our anxiety of the future, and we lay it all at your feet and say, God, here I am, every part of me. I don't feel the need to hide from you or make excuses, but speak to me, transform me because of your loving presence. So may the words of my lips and the meditation of all of our hearts be ever pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So this is Ecclesiastes chapter one. The words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. What do people gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun? Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. 
The sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows to the south and turns to the north. Round and round it goes, ever returning on its course. All streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place the streams come from, there they return again. All things are wearisome, more than one can say. The eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear its fill of hearing. What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one can say, look, there's something new? It was here already, long ago. It was here before our time. No one remembers the former generations. And even those yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow them. I, the teacher, was king over Israel and Jerusalem. I applied my mind to study and to explore by wisdom all that is done under the heavens. (sighs) What a heavy burden God has laid on mankind. I've seen all the things that are done under the sun. All of them are meaningless, a chasing after the wind. What is crooked cannot be straightened. What is lacking cannot be counted. I said to myself, look, I have increased in wisdom more than anyone who has ruled over Jerusalem before me. I've experienced much wisdom and knowledge. Then I applied myself to the understanding of wisdom and also of madness and folly. But I learned that this too is a chasing after the wind. For with much wisdom comes much sorrow. The more knowledge, the more grief. The word of the Lord. I hope that made you uncomfortable. Like there's part of me that just wants to do jazz hands after reading Ecclesiastes. to be like, hey, cheer up. It's not that bad. But we actually find chapter upon chapter of this kind of writing of this old man who's just agonizing. Like I tried to understand it all and it just made it worse. (laughs) It's almost uh, humorous if it weren't so poignant to these moments in our lives where we feel that kind of despair. And I think especially what the teacher is speaking of is kind of setting up the rest of the book in this chapter, in this this really amazing poem, is that there are moments when we are confronted by how temporary everything really is. But we invite suffering when we try to define ourselves by the vapor of life. In that first verse, he says, meaningless, meaningless, utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. And that Hebrew word, hevel, it literally translates as vapor. It's just mists. You can't hold it. You can't touch it. You can't grab it. It's just here and then it's gone. Other translations say vanity, vanity. Everything is vanity. And then he proceeds to tell us what are the things that he considers so vaporous, so meaningless. He says, our hard work and our effort. He says, our chasing after pleasures of enjoying life. He says, even the pursuit of knowledge and understanding is meaningless. He says, our relentless pursuit to seek out new things, always looking for the bright and shiny object, these are meaningless. 
And, what, and again, if we bring it back to that Hebrew word of, of vapor, what it really means is they're here and they're gone. They're, they're temporary. They're momentary. They're not solid things that we can latch onto and find any really sense of identity or security. And so I think this first very offensive statement that he makes, just to kind of set us up for expectation, is to say all of these things, all of these pursuits in life are meaningless when we, in terms of our value as human beings, in terms of our identity, when that's what we look to in order to define who we are. And the other very famous line in this first poem that I'm sure you're familiar with, nothing is new under the sun. That it's the sun rises and the sun sets and everybody says, this is new. And it's like, no, it's, it's been done before. Everything's a cycle. There's, nothing, there's no new ideas. There's no new thoughts. And the, the offensiveness of this, I think especially to Americans, is that we're very passionate about progress and forward movement and onwards and upwards, that life is what you make and you just got to grab it by the horns. And, and Ecclesiasticus is going, no, <laughs> no. That's all, it's an illusion. It's, it's, that's wrong thinking. And so it's that kind of attitude, the illusion of, of progress, of self-improvement, of, of controlling the narrative, of working really hard to earn your sense of value. That's what the preacher is deconstructing in this book. And chapter after chapter, he continues to hammer this home that all these things that we try to find our identity in will fail us. And yet, because of our cultural optimism, we don't want to listen. We don't want to read Ecclesiastes because it makes us feel uncomfortable. Or we'll dip our toes into Ecclesiastes and then we'll run to all the other Bible verses that make us feel good. You know, Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. If I just believe it, then I can achieve it, name it and claim it. Amen, brother. Failing to recognize that what Paul is actually saying in Philippians is, I have learned the secret to contentment, whether I have a lot or a little. It is Christ who strengthens me. It's not my circumstances. It's not my stuff. It's not my possessions that define me. It's it being in Christ. You know, this year, our vision is maturing in Christ for the sake of the world. And I've been thinking a lot about this series, especially of what's immaturity and what does maturity look like. And I believe that immaturity is when we try to cling tightly to things to define us, to make us feel safe, to make us feel loved. And we can't, we're just always grabbing at vapors. Meanwhile, we ignore the things that we actually can latch onto, the, the places where we actually have the, the, the power to allow God to define us. I think this is kind of what Paul means when he says in Ephesians that, that, you know, as the church that's being established through the spirit of all of us being raised up together, he says, therefore, we will no longer be like infants tossed back and forth by the waves. How many of you this year, you have felt like you've been tossed back and forth by the waves as the pandemic has stripped you of all of your conventional wisdom, as racial tensions have stripped you of all your conventional wisdom, as politics has stripped you of all of your assumptions of how the world works and what is good and what is bad and, and 
what Christians are supposed to do and what they're not supposed to do. All of these things are tossing us back and forth because we've put our identity in those things instead of in God. But there's good news, my friends. You came here for good news and I'm gonna give it to you. If we allow it, suffering will purge us of the vapor we cling to for our value so we can hold fast to our true identity in Jesus. You see, so often we believe that because we're Christians, we shouldn't be made to suffer. That if there's suffering in our lives, if there's confusion, if that's lost, that reflects poorly on either Jesus because he's not good and he's not doing what he said he was going to do or on us that we haven't believed hard enough. And we hold that existential despair at bay and say, well, it can't possibly be Jesus's fault. And I don't want to admit it that it's my fault. So the suffering must come from somewhere else. And I just need to find a place to pin it. But there's a sense of entitlement of like, no, no, I'm in Jesus. I don't deserve to have these things happen in my life. I'm supposed to have an answer for everything. I was, I was sold confidence and that there's an answer for everything. And, and, and that's, this is just how life works. And unfortunately, many of us, and we see this kind of in the great revealing, the great apocalypsing in the American church today is that many American Christians are still holding tightly to vapor and going, no, 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 this is how the world works. And this is what it's like. And this is what's really going on. And in and, and a way that prevents them from experiencing what's actually happening around us. But if we allow the suffering, the pain, the confusion in life to, to be what it is, that it's present before us, but it becomes information for us to read through the Holy Spirit, that suffering will begin to speak to us about what we place our confidence in. That's circumstantial, that's temporary. These things that are actually vapor. That we thought it was our faith, we thought it was God, but it was actually our ideologies it was our worldviews. It was our social imaginaries. And as we begin to purge ourselves of those things, then we can pivot back to understanding the true core of identity is something eternal, not temporary. And that, of course, is that we are the beloved of God. That our identities, your identity, the truth, the truest thing that I can say about you has nothing to do with what you've done or you haven't done or what you've earned or what you've achieved or how well you love other people. The truest thing that I can say about you is that you are loved by God. And that identity, that eternal unchanging identity is, is a gift that you can only receive. It's not something that you have to fight for or earn. But when we're grounded in that kind of eternal, unchanging identity in, as the beloved, it begins to give new context for our suffering. And our belovedness actually gives new context for all of the vapor of life. That all these little moments, all these transient things, all these circumstances in our lives that are here today and gone tomorrow, when we're grounded in the love of God, actually become these sacred and precious moments to express our belovedness to a constantly shifting world. When we stop striving to control the narrative, to protect ourselves, to, to find our identity in these transient things. Our belovedness begins to radiate out of us. 
because our source is in what God says about us, not in all of the other things. And this is far from being escapist. Don't hear me that belovedness is an escape from life to say, oh, well, it doesn't really matter when there's like pain and suffering in the world because uh, God loves us. No, that's not what I'm saying at all. I'm saying when we understand our belovedness, it actually grounds us deeper and it, and it makes us feel more for what's happening in our own lives and the lives of those around us. And when our identity is in Christ, this being one of the, the main values in our church, when our identity is in Christ, we begin to slowly over time re-examine the things that we cling so tightly to in our former lives. We allow Jesus to begin to redefine what we think success really means. We begin to allow Jesus to redefine what we think power actually means or authority we begin to allow Jesus to redefine for us what it means for us to love people, to love ourselves. And over time, as those vapors are purged from us, what is truest of us at the core begins to naturally appear more and more on the outside in our words, in our deeds. And this is how we find um, the men and the women of the New Testament, the early church, living out this reality because they have the spirit of Jesus in them, uh, working this out, like rooting them in their belovedness and then dramatically recontextualizing all the pain and suffering they were experiencing. I think we don't find that anywhere more profoundly than in the story of Paul. Many of you would maybe know St. Paul's story of traveling all around um, you know, the Middle East and parts of the Roman Empire, preaching the good news, and he was constantly suffering. And he even challenges the Corinthians in it because they were, think, they were under the illusion that you and I are a lot of times, oh, if somebody's suffering, they must be cursed. And if we're in a place of privilege and power, and if we have lots of money and we're secure, then we must be blessed by God. And Paul's actually mocking them in one of the letters that he writes them going, oh, you're so rich and we're so poor and you must be blessed and we're cursed because all these things are happening to us. And it's actually quite funny when you read it with a sarcastic tone. But in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, he begins to say all these things like, here's the reality of what this is costing me. Uh, you know, we're being, we're being pressed down, but not crushed. And we're being chased and, and beaten and imprisoned on all of this. And he kind of finishes out. He's talking about all these realities. He says this. This is 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16. He says, therefore, do not lose heart. Okay? Therefore, do not lose heart. Though outwardly, we are wasting away. Yet inwardly, we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So, we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. There is an audacity to the way that Paul speaks about his own story. He goes into great detail to talk about all of this suffering and, and the being chased and being beaten and being imprisoned and nearly being killed and being starved. And then for him to say our light and momentary troubles, it's like, Paul, are you kidding me? That's insane. But I love that Paul understanding when he says, you know, the eternal glory, it's being with Jesus, like being in intimate relationship with God, being his beloved forever and ever. And that's how Paul says, like, how, the love that God lavishes on us, that we should be called his children. 
says that reality dramatically recontextualizes all the suffering in my life where all those things that I would have normally said are now curses and they're horrible and terribly goes, no, no, that's the place where I'm working it out. That's the place where I meet Jesus on a far more profound level than I ever would if I just avoided suffering by some sort of convenient theology. He understood what Jesus was doing in those moments and grounding him deeper and deeper in his true identity. And so I want us to take some time and I've written for us a meditation on vapor. And what we're going to do is I'm going to pray and I want you to actually imagine yourself, like visually use your divine imagination that as I, as I walk through some of these statements that I'm going to be making about identity, that you would in your mind's eye, just lay whatever the Lord brings to mind, that you would lay those things at the feet of Jesus as kind of a sacrifice to say, Jesus, I I admit, this is what I've put my identity in and I've tried to grasp after these meaningless things in order to make myself feel safe or to feel loved, but I'm laying them at your feet as a sacrifice because I want to be defined by the way that you see me. So I'm going to pray and then we're just going to take some time um, to work through this meditation. Let's begin with a prayer of openness. Almighty God, to you all hearts are open, all desires known, and from you no secrets are hid. Cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit that we may perfectly love you and worthily magnify your holy name through Christ our Lord. Vapor. Vapor. Everything is vapor. Lord, show us what we cling to in vain and teach us to let go so that we can rest in your presence. So I'll just give you a moment. Just imagine that you're standing before Jesus. Do not be afraid. And I'm going to read each of these statements and there's going to be a question for you to ponder deep in your heart through the aid of the Holy Spirit and allow him to reveal places where your identity might be attached to these uh, different arenas. I am not my good deeds. What do you fear might happen if you get things wrong? I am not my ability to love others well. Whose opinions of you do you let determine your value? I am not defined by my successes or failures. 
What do you point to in your life to prove you're worthy of love? I am not my unique contribution to the world. What bit of your personality are you most afraid to lose because it makes you special? I am not my ability to understand any of this. In what areas of your life do you obsessively consume information to protect yourself from feeling fear? I am not defined by my team affiliation. Which tribal voices do you let tell you who you are? I am not my pleasures or my need for new experiences. What frivolities do you hold on to tightly to avoid dark emotions? I am not my ability to fight or struggle. Are you afraid if you slow down and let go that you don't care enough? I am not measured by how much conflict is in my world. What are you avoiding right now and why? 
in this final one, I want you to say this. Say it out loud if you're brave enough, but at the least say it from the depths of your being. This is the truest thing that you could say about yourself. I am the beloved of God. Heavenly Father, we recognize that there are so many circumstances and temporary things. There's so much meaningless vapor that we try to latch onto in order to define us, to make us feel safe when all along you're coming alongside of us and offering us this free gift of belovedness, this eternal identity that does not change, it does not ebb and flow. It's not contingent upon our actions. It's nothing that we can earn or strive for. It's a gift to be received. And so, Heavenly Father, would you continue to minister to each one of us in teaching us how to let go of the vapor in our lives so that we can find our identity in you. We pray all of these things in the strong name of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. This has been the City Beautiful Church podcast. To stay connected, follow us on social everywhere at City Beautiful CH. We hope you join us again soon.